Go Ask Alice is a show intended for adult audiences because adults want to learn too. Sometimes we cover sensitive material, so please take care of yourselves and listener discretion is advised. Now on to the show. The show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I'm a bad bitch. <laughs> With me is... I'm Lindsay, and I never need my receipt. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm Sarah, and I really like big things of Australia. <laughs> Thank you for that prepositional phrase. <laughs> <laughs> All the big things. <laughs> This is the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes. We all start out on the same wiki page every week, and then we navigate away from that page separately behind the scenes using hyperlinks within the article or outside, basically just using links, until we land somewhere that we cannot stop reading. This is something that has completely captured our attention, and we are bursting with excitement to share it with each other and with all of you. This week, we started on a very special page because of a very special person. We started on the page for waffles, and this is all in honor of our best friend in the whole world, Michelle, otherwise known as Gunshizer on Twitch. Michelle has agreed, finally, to partner with us and give us all of her chaos in exchange for all of our education because you know that's totally why you're here that's our big announcement that's been going down on twitter (laughs) if you follow Lindsay's twitter countdowns thank you (laughs) yes i should have probably said that i just assume everybody follows on twitter so if you you also would like to choose our starting page or our question of the week Uh, That is something that is also available on our Patreon, which is also recently launched. So if you feel like it, find us on Patreon and come hang out with us even more. Even more. (laughs) We started on waffles because of Michelle. Yes. Yes. Where did everybody else end up? Well, I, once again, I didn't go too far. I ended up on uh, maple syrup. You didn't no. go too far. Which is my favorite thing in the fucking world. I love maple syrup. I didn't go too far because I love maple syrup. Who doesn't love it? It is great. I mean, the fact that you can tap a tree. Yeah. <laughs> incredible. True. <laughs> I would drink maple syrup out of a flask like all day if I could. <gasps> yeah. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. It's good. I Okay. I ended up on... Amphisbaina. <laughs> Amphisbaina? Do you have to say it in the southern accent as well? You can say it every way you want. Amphisbaina. 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 I'm so keen to learn, to learn what that is. Is it a person? I don't know. Oh, Lindsay Who just knows? shrugged. Who knows? Well, okay, I um, you are not going to expect where I landed. Uh, and I think it's so ironic that we got some maple syrup because I feel like it's a good condiment to go with things that you eat, right? Yeah. Yeah. I landed on corpse medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, 
Sarah, okay, yes. okay. Let me just let me pause. Everybody, okay, we're recording this on Discord at which you know by now. And there's a Discord channel called Spoilers. And earlier Sarah put in a spoiler that was just a screenshot that says, What did it taste like? Not good. And now I'm <laughs> horrified. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yeah, classic, classic good old corpse medicine. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did you try it? No. No, but the Victorians definitely did. Okay, because you made it seem like you tried it. Oh, no, 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 no. I, that They were my notes. Um, That was an antidote from someone because I obviously had to Google what did it taste like. Oh, my God. I and can't wait. Historians have said not good. Um. We got a sidetrack from corpses and we got to move on to toilets. Um, so our question of the week this week is, what do you do when you're on the toilet? Thank you, Michelle, for asking us and everybody else. Excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess this is a good time to say that Gunshizer, Michelle's Twitch handle, it stands for, it means battle shits, which uh, is a great game. Uh, my brother taught me that you just yell uh like B4 and then let loose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which girls don't do. That's like a whole other. We'll talk about girl bathroom etiquette later. Anyway, what do you do when you're on the toilet? True. What do I do? I do. This is a problem. I do many things. Um, I one. Number one is I play. My parents would actually find this very funny. I play. I play on my like um, my PSP. And my parents call it my PSP and poo, which <laughs> it's like so classic in my family that I do this, that, that it's become the PSP and poo. Um, so you just toddle to the toilet with your little, your little PSP. You're like, I'll go, go take a poo poo. Go, go take a poo. And it, oh my God, I spend way too long on the toilet. But then I also, uh, I've, I've mentioned this previously. I browse a lot of dating apps while I'm on there, which is fun, oh, fun yeah. as hell. Mm. Um, Again, ladies, he is single and ready to mingle. <laughs> Drew's a catch. Um, so, and then the third thing I do is I browse a lot of Reddit. So it's like video games, dating apps, and Reddit. That's my like bathroom time. Good. It's a good, good time. It's a good what? healthy balance. <laughs> it's a good healthy it's a balance. a good circuit. A good circuit. Um, that, I think that's great. What do you do, Lindsay? <laughs> um, I pretty much exclusively go to, there's like a part of Snapchat that's like horrible news. Like it's just like absolute junk tabloids. And so I just like mm. fill my brain with garbage. <laughs> like, just, it's just like all the celebrity gossip or then it's like, I survived vacation nightmare boat accident and like all kind of like horrible shit excellent but i'm not the only one because we had tons of submissions submission answers to this question and i'll remind you guys again i'm sure you already know this go ask alice pod go ask alice podcast that's twitter and instagram respectively if you want to be featured on question of the week with your answer just drop us a line below um, is also in our Discord channel. We have a separate channel for question of the question week. Of the week. So yeah. piling all of this in one neat pile. We have Swashplate from our Discord says reflect on life or watch videos. Not too dissimilar from what we have uh, said. 
Uh, Jeff E. Spaghetti says play Fire Emblem, which I guess is not too different than PSP <laughs> and Poop. PSP and Poop. <laughs> PSP and Poop. Um, and Gunshizer herself said stare angrily at the floor only to remember that I'm about to use my bidet. Which I kind of cheers her up. But what I love about this is that while I was in the bathroom, Michelle sent me a Snapchat of her in the bathroom. <laughs> because I said I'm I'm on Snapchat all the time in the bathroom. Michelle sent me a Snapchat video of herself smoking weed and said, I guess I do this while I'm on the toilet. <laughs> Michelle, like, fire and toilet is a really bad idea. And she was like, no, it's but fine. She's going to the day. That's what she said. But then she she tried to demonstrate and she got it all over the floor and the video abruptly stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Our Twitch affiliate, wow. everyone. Twitch affiliate. <laughs> Only the best. Only the best from twitch.com. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I kind of identify with Michelle because sometimes I'll just like, if I grab a little snack, like, because anyone who knows me knows that I pee a thousand times a day. I think at this point it could be a medical issue, um, but I need to pee constantly. And so like that interrupts my day of like, if I only have 15 minute break and I've got to go pee, I'll like grab my snack and eat it is that gross yeah there's something particularly cursed about eating in the bathroom but that's like in my own home bathroom maybe maybe we can edit that out that's cursed no no i, just, I, no, I love it no we'll go a little i'm busy got snack you're, you're putting it in one end and letting it out the other yeah you're, re- you're replenishing you're the stock oh gross you guys are so cursed. Sarah's eating as we're saying that. <laughs> you guys are so gross. Um, nom, nom, nom. Sarah could no. be in the bathroom right now. She's having a snack. She could She's be in the bathroom. So who are we going to start with this week? It could be fun to do number of clicks because my interesting fact yeah. right now is that I only went six clicks away from our original Seriously? starting page. Yes. It's kind of horrifying. Oh, crap. I think I went, like, 30 clicks, probably. Okay. Drew went two. I'm, Drew, I'm honestly surprised it took you two. I would have thought one. No, Drew. it was two. Mm. It was two. Okay. 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 Tell us all about maple okay. syrup. Maple syrup? Well, I feel like I have like have a brand now. It's just, like, a common thing that you know, and here's the history behind it. Like, I feel like I've got a brand. Okay. That is your brand, and you own it. That's your brand. So, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say this from the beginning. I really hope our audience is familiar with maple syrup, because it's the best thing in the fucking world. And if if you're not familiar with maple syrup, I I don't know how to help you. Just get maple syrup. It's great. So, I'm going to start out, of course, as everyone knows, uh, by defining my topic. I'm not unhinged this week. So maple syrup. You've been unhinged once. I've been unhinged once. (laughs) It's too much. Okay, so maple syrup is a syrup that is used um, that is usually made from the xylem sap, uh, which is part of the plant circulatory system uh, of sugar maples, red maples, or black maple trees. So that's like I don't know. That's got a lot to it. Um, It's it's basically a syrup made from sap from trees. That's the long and short of it. 
Um, and there are, of course, other species of maple trees that can be used, uh, but those three are the kind of the main species that are used. So in cold climates, these trees store starch in their trunks and roots before winter, and then this starch is then converted to sugar that rises in the sap later in the winter, and I'm sorry, in late winter or early spring. So the sap rises up the tree, which is why it's the xylem sap, because xylem... Um, <laughs> Like this, little veins. Yeah, xylem is like little veins because there's xylem and phloem. These words sound stupid, but the, these are the actual words for uh, the plant's circulatory system. So xylem is like those, is as Sarah said, it's like veins that go up the tree, while phloem is kind of just everywhere. And, and that's, that's how they get their oxygen. Or not oxygen, CO2. You know, you know what they do. Their version of oxygen. Oxygen, <laughs> yeah. You know what trees do. You know what trees do. <laughs> So <laughs> maybe I'll talk about that later. That's great. <laughs> it's another great topic. Um, so maple trees are actually tapped by drilling holes in their trunks, which I'm sure we know a little bit about. But this is actually known as the European way of doing it. This is not the, the native way of doing of, of tapping a tree. Milking a tree. So it like, you know, the, the Europeans is very much drill and the native way is a little bit different. Um, and then... The rising sap is then collected, and um, the sap is then processed by heating to evaporate much of the water, and then the sap is thereby concentrated into syrup. So that's kind of how maple syrup is made. So maple syrup, of course, uh, was first made by the indigenous people of North America, and um, this practice was then adopted by European settlers, who eventually changed the production method of, for maple syrup. Just kind of with technological improvements and different things like that, they, they really changed the method. Wait, so what, oh, sorry, what, what was it that Native people did? What was their strategy? So the, the tapping was a little bit different. They'd, they'd carve a slight V into the, um, into the tree and then leave the, the tap at the bottom of the V. And the incision wasn't so much, um, they call it an incision. And it wasn't so deep as the uh, as like boring a hole into the tree, and so it was a little bit kinder to the trees. I'm just you know fantasizing about yeah. this, it, but it's a yeah. it's a little it's a little less destructive to the trees than um, like literally drilling a hole in it. So that's that's yeah. like the the inherent difference. But they they may not have gotten as much of like a uh, like a syrup yield from the tree, but I feel like it was just kinder to the tree. So that's you know me. Got you. Actually, um, when it comes to the 1970s, because technological improvements really only ha not only happened, but basically like the real technological improvements to um, like syrup making actually happened in the 1970s. Like this basically further refined the process of making syrup. So, wow. vir so virtually all of the world's maple syrup is produced in Canada and the U.S. with the Canadian province of Yum. Quebec being the biggest producer of syrup. So Quebec is actually responsible for 70% of the world's output. 70%. That's like Jeez. ridiculous. That's like... Wow. <laughs> and don't they have maple syrup reserves as well? Yes, they do. To hold value? Yeah. That's amazing. I would so love to have maple syrup investments. <laughs> they wouldn't last very long. I'd eat it all. <laughs> <laughs> but if we if we remember back to our coffee episode, or like, like the coffee episode, um, I don't... That um, talking about Brazil, Brazil was only like 35% of the world. This is 70% of the world's output is coming from Quebec. So that's, that's just huge. ridiculous. Um, yeah. So it's just ridiculous. So um, Canadian exports in maple syrup reached in 2016, reached up to $360 million in U.S. currency, which is also huge. Holy moly. And that year, Quebec accounted for 90% of the total exports from Canada. 
Ninety percent. Wow. Wow, Girk you back. Cocoa I always back. say it's liquid gold when I'm eating it. And it like kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is. It, it is. really is. <laughs> So, um, a fun fact, maple syrup is actually graded according to the U.S., Canada, and Vermont scales, and that's based on the density and the translucency of the syrup in question, which we will get into a little bit later, because I, I found that grading scale to be very, very funny. Do you want, is, is it like a diamond? Do you want it to be more translucent? Translucent? That depends. Or do you want it to be? That depends. Ooh. That depends on what I kind of... I cannot wait like... to be an expert in this. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Next time I'm at, I'm at IHOP spinning their syrup around yeah. like fine wine it's yeah. not as thick as i like it the tannins <laughs> in this syrup <laughs> <laughs> is this grade a we'll get to that we'll get to it i mostly just want to i want to know enough to go to the supermarket and just like shove them aside on the shelf and be like this is shit this is garbage <laughs> not this Grade A? I don't think so. <laughs> oh my god. Wow. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> grade A's the top, Ugh, so you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to push it away. Make me make me picky. Okay, I will. So <laughs> So as an aside that I found really cool, um, sucrose is actually the, the most prevalent sugar in maple syrup and not glucose. So that's just like a little science fact for you. Mm. That's that's where the taste comes from. It's sucrose. Um, but is that still a sugar? Yes, hundred percent. Well, it's got os at the end just of it. Just a different a different sugar. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's just like a different structured sugar. So in Canada, syrups must be made exclusively from maple sap to quantify as maple syrup, or sorry, to qualify as maple syrup, and must also be at least sixty six percent sugar. In the U.S., the rules are a little bit less strict. Um, so the syrup must be made almost almost entirely of maple syrup, or sorry, maple sap, to be labeled as maple. Though the states of Vermont and New York tend to have much stricter res- restrictions uh, for their de- definitions of maple syrup. So it's it's depends on where you're from, but you know, in the U.S., it's kind of like it almost has to be full of maple syrup, but it's not entirely. So. But Canada, you get the real stuff. Do you have golden syrup in the U.S.? I don't know what have that is. Have you heard is. of that? I don't know what We that have is. that here in Australia, and it's like a budget maple syrup. But I wonder if it's still... A, I thought it was just like a man-made syrup, but I wonder if it's still a tree syrup, but not from maple trees. Yeah, there was a, there was a whole section in the Wikipedia article about... Um, like not, I almost said fakes. That's not right, the right word for it, but like uh, imitations, authentic. imitations. Yeah. That's the one. Um, and I didn't really fully get into that, but there was a whole section about imitations and how like it's it's like a man-made thing that uses like a small percent of the maple syrup, so they can say it's kind of maple syrup, but it's not actually maple uh, syrup because uh, it's all cheeky. all man-made exactly. So um, culinary experts have actually pra- culinary experts have praised the unique flavor of maple syrup. But what I found very funny was the chemistry responsible for the actual taste of maple syrup is not actually fully understood. It's just like we don't what? we don't fully get it. We don't we don't know why it we tastes so good. We don't know why it's so magical yeah. and yummy. <laughs> exactly. Tree secrets. Tree secrets. <laughs> How do they do? You know, I kind of found this to be a little funny because it feels like we have a lot of things that just work and we don't have any idea why they work, but they just they work. Uh, yeah. Notably, 
notably like a lot of psychiatric medication. I don't know why I'm on this topic, but no. a lot of psychiatric medication, we have no idea how it works, but we just know it works, yeah. which is, it's like maple syrup. There you go. That's the connection. There, there. we go. Antidepressants, maple syrup. Maple one syrup. In, there you one go. In there. <laughs> one in a kind. One in a kind. We don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Drew and I are surviving right now. Antidepressants, maple syrup. Maple syrup. And, maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> and Lindsay, sorry, I assume that you're just more mentally stable than me. <laughs> no, I've just been taking the same wow. antidepressants for like 15 years. For years. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very well built up in my system. <laughs> it makes us all funnier. So uh, now I want to actually get into the sources of maple syrup a little bit more in depth. Um, as I mentioned, the specific trees that the syrup comes from, but I just wanted to get a little bit more into, you know, it's not just three tree species. It's, it's, there's more than that. So as I said, predominantly maple syrup comes from the, the three tree species, the sugar maple, which is Acer sacrum, the black maple, which is Acer nigrum, and then the red maple, which is Acer rubrum. Um, the Acer being the genus and then the other one being the species. Um, due to the high sugar content, roughly two to 5% in the sap of these, that these species produce. So they have a high sugar content, which is why we use them, which makes sense because you want to have good maple syrup. So of these tree species, the red maple has the shortest season because it buds earlier than the sugar and black maples, which actually alters the flavor of the sap. So um, one thing that's later mentioned that I mentioned later, the earlier you harvest the sap, the lighter the syrup is and sweeter the taste because as you go later in the season, it becomes a more darker taste and you get more of like the full maple versus a little bit of the sugary taste Ooh. to it. So it, there's a big difference between, you know, the beginning of the season versus the end of the Barrel season. Barrel aged. And we'll get to the grading. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's maple age. Definitely isn't. <laughs> isn't it's the same thing as being barrel aged it is no it's completely different but it's a woody <laughs> it's taste a fuller flavor because right? it's yeah i bet it's the same chemistry i think i've got this figured out i think everyone is like oh we don't know how maple syrup works no one asked me <laughs> <laughs> barrel aged i don't think that's right but i don't know enough about maple syrup to deny it so <laughs> it's just like it's tree wine i I disagree because you don't. I don't think you you don't boil wine to make it. You, no, you okay, it's fair anyway, enough. Anyway, but it's, it's very different. You do either. put it in wood. Yes, you do. You one hundred percent boil it. <laughs> oh well, I wouldn't know that because nobody taught me that yet. <laughs> I thought it just came out of. I thought it came out of the tree. Good to go. Like I thought you could go <laughs> no, stick no, your mouth on not. it and down some premium maple syrup. No. 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 God no. God, oh, no. The, the, that takes my fantasy away from living in Canada one day. The image I posted is of maple syrup being produced. That's like the sap that they, like that, that black stuff, that, that brown image. stuff. Yeah, that's, that's Shit, the sap. Shit, that makes so much sense. Yeah, that's the sap. There you go. God, I thought you, that image was of Guinness. No, it's that sap. So, a f <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, a few other species <laughs> of maple, uh, the genus Acer, um, are also sometimes used as sources for maple syrup. And these include the box elder or the Manitoba maple, which is Acer naganto, uh, the mm -hmm. silver maple, which is Acer sacranium, and then the big leaf maple, which is Acer macrophyllum, which I just love that name because it's just like, it's like big leaf. And <laughs> <laughs> it's literally like its name big. is big leaf. So it's great. 
So in the southeastern United States, there's actually a Florida sugar maple, um, which is very different from the, the regular sugar maple, but still does produce similar sap to it. And that's Acer floridinium, um, sorry, floridinum. And uh, this is actually a this is used uh, for maple syrup production. So the North doesn't have a like complete domination of the of the syrup market. It can uh, it can actually be moved a little bit further southeast, um, depending on what we want to do. Um, similar syrups can actually be produced from walnut trees, birch trees, and even palm trees. Um, but I really, palm trees. yeah, palm trees. Um, but I really <laughs> don't think I'm gonna be putting palm syrup on my pancakes anytime soon. So. I'll try it. <laughs> You, you try it? I'll try it, yeah. I don't know if I would. I pa Pancakes are sacred. Pancakes and maple syrup are sacred to me. <clears throat> I wanted to get into the history of maple syrup um, because I absolutely love this syrup and really wanted to know who to thank for this great topping. So, yes. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, the first people to actually make maple syrup were indigenous people living in northeastern, the northeastern parts of North America. So these were the first groups known to produce both maple syrup and maple sugar specifically. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, there, there could have been other groups that do it, but this is just like the first that we know of. So I feel like that kind of applies to all history of these kind of things. It's just like it, it could have been produced before that, but this is all we know. So how long ago was it first figured out that this was a thing? They actually didn't specify a date. They, they never really gave a date for this. Yeah. They just kind of, they, cause, um, there's really no quote-unquote authentic accounts um, before Europeans uh, entered the equation. So, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's during the European colonization period. So there were no real, like, recordings of this, but there was, there was archaeological evidence, but they really didn't give a date based off of the, yeah. the archaeological evidence. So the, I would love to give you a date, but I don't have one. No, I guess it's tough. I would just love to know if it's before or after, like, coffee. Hmm, that'd be great to know, but... Uh, yeah, timeline of delicious foods. You can imagine, though, the person who came back to the group and was like, you will not fucking believe what I just found in this tree. <laughs> it tastes like gold. <laughs> I'm sure they would have been a hero. Absolute hero. Well, we'll actually, we'll get into a few of the oral traditions of the indigenous people and, and how it kind of like, how these myths came about of like the discovery of maple syrup. So... Um, according to their or the oral traditions, according to the indigenous oral traditions and the archaeological evidence that we found, uh, maple tree sap was being produced, was being processed into syrup long before Europeans arrived in the region. So as I said, there were no real authentic accounts, quote unquote authentic accounts um, of how maple syrup production and consumption began, but various legends do exist. Um, with one of the most popular involving maple sap being used to, in place of water, to cook venison served to a chief. And so that's mm. like kind of the origin story of it is like, oh, we, you know, instead of using water, we used maple sap and it tasted great. So why don't we just continue doing God, that? And that would have tasted great. Like, um, like a glazed meat. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That's what it is. So, um, Coming from a vegetarian, just yeah. anything that's glazed. I'm like, yeah, that sounds really good. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny that you're just like, mm, meat. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> More the glaze. So indigenous tribes actually developed rituals around sugar making and would celebrate the sugar moon, which is the first full moon of the spring, uh, with Wait, what is called what? the maple dance. The sugar moon? Yeah, the sugar moon. The sugar moon. I love that. That sounds so fun. 
<laughs> that sounds awesome. That does sound awesome. I want to worship Maple's tear up and then <laughs> incorporate the moon. <laughs> we can. Yeah, the sugar moon. We can. We definitely can. But yeah, they would celebrate it with the maple dance. And that was, wow. uh, that's like a very, very honored tradition of uh, a lot of indigenous peoples, indigenous tribes. And um, what I found, this is like my favorite fact about this is many Abor- aboriginal dishes actually replace the salt that's traditionally used in European cuisine with maple sugar or syrup. Ooh. So like they completely, you know, you know how we salt everything. Mm-hmm. They're actually using syrup or maple sugar for everything, which oh. is like completely blew my mind that they, yes. that, you know, they, they made everything sweet versus being savory. It would have tasted so much better because the Europeans salted everything mainly to preserve it, right? Yeah. It was less of a tasting, more of a, I don't want to die. I want to think of like putting, like dousing things with maple syrup as like preserving it in amber <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh that'd be delicious the the algonquins actually um they recognized maple sap as a source of energy and nutrition so that mm. was like their their big thing is they realized how important um maple syrup was to oh, especially to through the winter alive. absolutely yeah um so at the beginning of the spring thaw they would as i said they would make the v-shaped incisions in tree trunks and then they would insert reeds or concave pieces of bark to run the sap into clay buckets or tightly woven uh, birch bark baskets. We we'll start saying that three times fast. Birch bark birch basket. Birch bark basket. Bark 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 bark. So the, the maple sap was then concentrated by leaving it exposed to cold temperatures overnight and then removing the layer of ice that formed on top of the sap. So basically they, they did a, a freeze concentration. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, like yeah instead exactly. Instead of evaporating it off, they just like yep. let it. So that was like, the first step towards um, making uh, syrup is they they remove that layer of ice and then they'd further concentrate it by boiling. So the sap was then transported by sled to large fires that were used to boil the sap in clay pots to produce maple syrup. So um, one one thing that that the article said was also contrary to popular belief, syrup was not actually produced by dropping heated stones in wooden bowls. That was like not a way they did it. How they did it was literally just like pretty much the same way we produce it now is is you know take it in boil it and then you end up with your syrup so that was like a, a common misconception so well, now of course ha- like i never thought that how did people think <laughs> that? Yeah. I, I, apparently that was the common misconception about about how uh syrup was being produced so that's a okay. you can ask wikipedia they that's what they said that's the record straight yeah thank <laughs> set you the record that. straight <laughs> now of course we get to the european colonization uh, so this is Northeast North America. So during this time, um, local local indigenous people actually showed the arriving colonists how to tap trunks um, of certain types of maple trees during the spring thaw to harvest sap. So Andre Thivet, who was the royal cosmographer of France, wrote that Jacques Cartier uh, drank maple syrup during his Canadian voyages. And Cartier is actually the person who named Canada. Um, I think he was after two um, Aborigine tribes. Uh, they, they, I think they're two towns where something, I, I don't remember exactly what, but, um, I, he gave the name Canada to Canada. So, um, so by 1680, European settlers and fur traders were actually involved in the harvest of maple products. However, rather than making incisions in the bark, as I said, the Europeans would literally drill tap holes in trunks using an auger. And, uh, I don't know if you two are familiar with an auger. Um, but Wait, you mean like not somebody who reads bird symbols? Not an augurist? Uh, not an augurist, no, an auger. 
Um, is it's that, like is a type it of a drill. Exactly a drill, um, but you might be very familiar with a, like a wine bottle opener. Yeah. That's a very small auger. So that like that style of drill that you see, that's an auger. I see. Gotcha. So you can you can impress someone at a party like, oh, give me the wine auger. <laughs> <laughs> I like, what the parties. hell? The only parties that would go over well are parties that Drew and I both happen to be at. <laughs> so I'll let you do that. <laughs> Lindsay would be at the back be like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he said the thing. <laughs> Give, bring me the wine auger. I require the wine auger to open this bottle. <laughs> I think it's such a shame that you were not born into royalty back in the day, Drew, because you... <laughs> Would have been an incredible throne sitter and demander of things. I require the auger. Is that what I sound like? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> that was so mean to Sarah just now. That was, that was savage. No, I think it's my Aussie accent, which doesn't help. It's okay, Drew. I get it. I sound like shit. Wow, I hope I don't sound anything like Sarah. That's <laughs> <laughs> Drew just said. No, no, it was funny. It's funny. That's not what I meant because you did an American accent and I was like, I hope I don't sound like that. Did I? I thought I was doing a British accent. Wow. Oh, that was a... Anyway. <laughs> so prior to the 19th century, the processing of maple sap was actually um, a primary, primarily used as a source of concentrated sugar. So in both liquid and crystallized solid form, because cane sugar at the time needed to be imported from the West Indies and was therefore much harder to get compared to making ma maple sap. Basically, all of the sugar sources were actually coming from maple sugar and not cane sugar, which is very different from what we have now because now cane sugar is more readily available. So it was it wasn't such a problem to, to make. Yeah, I'm like really jealous of these people who are like, oh, it's just cheaper to have maple syrup. Like, yeah, maple, maple sugar It's like, yeah. <laughs> So um, maple sugaring groups typically began to operate at the start of the spring thaw. So they would they would work in regions of woodland with sufficiently large numbers of maples, of course, because you need maples to make maple syrup. So um, syrup makers first bored holes in trunks and would usually put more than one hole per tree. And so you'd end up having like a few bored holes in each tree and then you'd have um, they'd insert a wooden spout into the holes and then hang a wooden bucket from the protruding end of the spout to collect the sap. And what I found very interesting was that these buckets themselves were typically made by hollowing cylindrical segments of large tree trunks. So basically they'd cut the tree down and then take a large cylindrical part of it and then just hollow that out. And then that, that would be their bucket. Oh, so, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, no. The poor tree. That's their stock, though. <laughs> yeah, but it's like it's almost, it feels like almost tree cannibalism. It's like the corpse of a tree is collecting the blood of another tree. Spoken like a true vegetarian. <laughs> I think that's just your lens, Sarah. <laughs> they needed buckets, so... Yeah, they, they made a bucket. So the sap that filled these buckets um, was either transferred to large holding vessels, uh, which were mounted to sleds or wagons and pulled by draft animals, or were literally carried in other buckets or other containers from like place to place. So it wasn't... You know, like they take the, they'd have the, the tap collector, or sorry, the sap collector, and then that would be dumped into another bucket, which would be transported elsewhere. So basically you just constantly have a bucket on the sap collector just to collect sap. That's lots of manual labor. 
along the way. Yeah, it's a lot of manual labor. Um, so it, this isn't an easy process. Yeah. <laughs> so the sap collector buckets were actually, uh, as I said, were returned to the spouts until the sap being collected was no longer quote unquote sweet. So um, the specific weather conditions of the thaw period and very much they, these are this is very much true for now. They're critical in determining the length of the sugaring season. So as the weather continues to warm, a maple tree's normal early spring biological processes eventually alter the taste of the sap, making it unpalatable. So there's only a very specific time period that you can that you can like tap a tree because the mm. the the sap isn't going to be good otherwise. And this could be due to the increase in amino acids within the sap that occurs at this season, at this stage in the season. So we don't really know why it's why it's so bad, but you know there is a large increase in amino acids. This still sounds like barrel aging. I don't. I don't think it does. You're not barrel aging. (laughs) Just you're boiling it and then putting it, then serving it. Is the tree not a barrel? That's like asking me if like a, a, a taco is a sandwich. Like it is. Okay, we're moving on. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> so the, the boiling process to make maple syrup is actually very time-consuming, and the harvesting of sap poured uh, into large vessels as, as like you'd pour you know, a lot of sap into these large vessels, and then you'd have to boil them in these large vessels. So um, this was done either using a, a fire built out in the open or inside a shelter known as a sugar shack. And so that's where we get the term sugar shack from is the, uh, like the, the small... Um, not small, but the, the building you would use to boil your, your sap. Um, so that's there, there's Sugar Shack. What about, wa- what about Waffle House? So around the time of the Civil War, <laughs> the American Civil War, I should say, um, mm-hmm. 1861 to 1865, uh, syrup makers actually started to use large flat metal sheets, like sheet pans, um, that were used to make boiling much more efficient because you had this heavier, not heavier, you had larger surface area. And instead of these like heavy rounded iron kettles that you, they were using previously, they'd use these like large flat buckets, not buckets, but pans, and then they'd boil it in that, and that would you know increase the 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 uh, efficiency of boiling. So uh, around this time, cane sugar began to uh, replace maple sugar as the dominant sweetener in the U.S. And as a result, producers actually focused marketing efforts on maple syrup only. So now they just instead of going for like you know we produce both, you know, maple sugar and maple syrup. They're just like hundred percent. Let's go straight to maple syrup. That's it. Um, so that was kind of the, the big switch is, is once cane sugar kind of began to be available. So the, the first evaporator, uh, which is used to heat and concentrate sap, uh, was patented in 1858. And then by 1857, I'm sorry, 1872, uh, an evaporator with two pans and a metal firebox was invented, which greatly decreased the boiling times. And basically, from here on, there's like there's not too much technological developments up until, as I said, the 1970s. Around 1900, uh, producers bent tin um, that formed the bottom of their pans into a series of flues uh, that increased the heating surface area, and then the that of course, decreased boiling time. So now you have a more efficient boiling because you have these little flues that are, that are allowing for a greater surface area. I love the idea of like an old timey kind of like chemistry set just for maple syrup. Just for maple syrup. Yeah, I love that too. That's, oh my God. Like there's like a Bunsen burner on one end and then there's like a bunch of like all these pipes going around and then there's like a little concentrated little cup and then I'm just waiting for it to go through the... <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be so great. Um, 
So some fancy producers actually uh, added a finishing pan, which was a separate batch evaporator at a final stage in the evaporation process to, you know, help sweeten the, um, the, the final product. And so uh, that like wasn't not every place did that, but some places did that. And then um, buckets began to be replaced with plastic bags. Um, to me, <laughs> I, felt, I felt like they tied one of those grocery bags at the end, but it must have been like a much more sturdier plastic bag. <laughs> but I was just like, grocery bags when they said plastic bags, but that's Reduce besides and the reuse. Point. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So um, plastic bags had the advantage that they'd allow people to see from a distance how much sap had been collected. So you, you wouldn't have to go check every single barrel and be like, oh, did this collect? No, it didn't. All right, move mm. on to the next one. So you'd just be able to see it visually. Well, the Canadians I, love putting liquids in bags, like the milk. I guess, I mean, it's more efficient. Yeah, it is efficient. Yeah, it's efficient. We'll go with that. <laughs> so, uh, seer producers also began to use uh, tractors to haul vats, uh, like vats of sap, um, from trees being tapped to evaporate, from trees being tapped to evaporators. And um, then some producers even adopted motor powered tappers. Uh, with metal tubing systems that conveyed the sap from like the tree to a central collection container. But this technique wasn't really widely used because it was so expensive just to, you know, it was easier to pay manpower than it was to to build this this new method. Yeah. Now we move into the technological changes of the 1970s because this is this is the big, big one that really, really changed how sap was collected and how syrup was produced. In the 1970s, plastic tubing systems became much more prevalent. Now the sap came directly from the tree to the evaporator house. And then they had vacuum pumps, which were added to the tubing systems, which with preheaters, they used that to, to recycle heat loss from the steam. These preheaters would recycle the heat loss into heating up the, the tubing so that the, the maple syrup was like at a higher ambient temperature when it was entering the vat. So it wasn't, it wasn't coming in cold, it was coming in much hotter because they were recycling the steam. Producers also developed a reverse osmosis machine, which take a portion of the water out of the sap before it was boiled. So once again, this increased the, the processing efficiency. And I don't know if you two are familiar with reverse osmosis. Uh, are you? No. No, I've heard the term, but I don't know what it means. I'm glad you asked, <laughs> even though you probably didn't. Unlock the secret level. <laughs> so um, reverse osmosis actually involves um, using a partially permeable membrane where you apply external pressure to it. And that allows the solute to be retained on the pressurized side of the membrane and the pure solvent is allowed to pass through to the other side. So basically what this means is the water passes freely to the other side of the membrane while the syrup is going to remain on the pressurized side. So you're basically nice. pulling out water just through, uh, I wouldn't call it a chemical process. It's a, it's a chemical it's biological physical. process. It's yeah. A, it's a, yeah. I have seen this done on a chemistry channel. Yeah, I've seen a reverse osmosis setup. Yeah, I think if you Google hot sauce from toilet paper, it will come up. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about that, <laughs> I wanted to end off on the current grading system that we use to grade maple syrup, which is what I referred to in the beginning. This grading system is rather simple. Uh, <laughs> it's just So maple syrup is graded in one of the following three grades. It's grade A, processing grade, or substandard. So <laughs> that's like, those are the three grades. So grade A, of course, is the highest grade and is broken down further into four different grades depending on the type of maple syrup that's being graded. So there's golden color with delicate taste, 
amber color with rich taste, dark color with robust taste, and finally very dark color with strong taste. So those are the four mm. categories of, of grade A, which... Okay. Robust taste. Yeah, robust taste. I, I can't tell if that's good or bad. Basically, the article said that as you get further down into like the darker um, maple syrups, that tends to have a very, very mapley taste to it and not so much of a sweet taste to it. And so that's used in more of baking versus being used to like pour on, on a, on a uh, waffle or, or a pancake or something. It's, that's, that's the lighter stuff that like the amber and the golden is what you actually put on the, uh, you, you, you put on your pancakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the next is processing grade, uh, which means that the syrup may have either like a slightly off flavor, may not be uniform in color, or might have some turbidity or sediments in it. And if any of these are true, the syrup is labeled as processing grade, which may not be sold in containers smaller than five U.S. gallons or 20 liters. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you can't buy it. You basically can't buy processing grade unless you want a ton of it. <laughs> I want a ton of it. How much do you think a five-gallon thing of maple syrup is? But this is processing grade. It might be like it might not taste like maple syrup. I bet it still yeah. tastes great. No, uh, it means that you still have to do things to it to make it edible. Well, <laughs> probably boil it more. <laughs> That's why I, they call it processing grade. If you get in a bargain. <laughs> uh, you really want 20 a... liters of maple syrup. <laughs> Drew I just would... went through everything you'd have to do. There's no way that's a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> I found one. I found a pail of pure Vermont maple syrup. It's $234 for five gallons. Wow. Well, that's that's probably grade A. It says perfect for restaurants, bakeries, breweries, and food and beverage yeah, producers. That's, great. that's, that's, that's grade, grade A. a. Oh, okay, that's the good stuff. That's they should good also stuff, put yeah. end for your household needs. So if the syrup does not meet any of these requirements uh, for processing grade, which includes basically not having the characteristic taste of maple syrup, it is classified as substandard, which cannot be sold. So any substandard type of syrup, you're not going to get. Do you know what happens to it if it gets that rating? I think it's just kind of, they they may process it more or they may just look at it as lost, you know, like a lost cause yeah. and just get rid of it. So I don't Surely really know. they could use it for like calorie substitute on like for animal feed and things like that. Like, they sh- I mean, they definitely could. I didn't see anything on the wiki article mm. that said like how they use it, but I think if it gets graded as substandard, it's just not good enough for human consumption. So that it definitely right. could be animal consumption, but it's just not good enough for maple syrup as we know it. What I found so funny about this grading system is that there's both subjective and objective terms. So the grading system is actually, um, it classifies the maple syrup depending on its transmittance at 560 nanometer wavelength through a 10 millimeter sample. So I love gold, that. So golden must be 75% or more transmittance. Amber must be 50% to 70, uh, 74.9% transmittance. Dark must be 25 to 49.9%. And then very dark must be anything less than 25%. It's like more strict than how we classify stars. <laughs> like <this>. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. It's like, it's blue. Love, it's like you need to calibrate your filter. It's got to have yeah. this index of refraction. Like yeah. this level of purity. Like <laughs> It's like a diamond. Exactly. Like the, liquid, but the liquid diamond. Liquid diamond. But the problem is, 
when it comes to flavor, it's literally a subjective taste test. Like, does this taste right? I like it's I so that. funny to me that it's like so scientific behind just like, oh, what turbi- what is transmittance? What's the turbidity on this? It, but then mm. as soon as it becomes like, oh, got to taste it. It's like, oh, it's got a strong taste to it. You know, <laughs> yeah, like imagine uh. you put it through like that. Like, like I'm imagining a person up close with like that. One of those like single eye magnifying glasses that diamond <laughs> cutters use. And he's like, this checks like it's a perfect specimen. And then someone just like sticks their finger in it and they're like tastes like shit throw it out throw it out <laughs> doesn't have strong taste <laughs> that's the history of maple syrup and grading system of maple syrup in a nutshell fucking love it I love it I love that food is becoming your own my brand my brand yeah your expertise yeah Drew's a food historian <laughs> I'm a food historian he's a foodie okay more fun stuff I'm so yes. keen to know what your topic is because I feel like it sounds like a person. Ampaspina. Ampaspina. It sounds really Australian. Ampaspina. I'm transgender, <laughs> Ampaspina. Okay. I will reiterate that this was only six clicks away from waffles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I know you don't even know what it is yet, but like with every new detail, you're going to be like, what the what fuck? The- <laughs> <laughs> So my topic is called, it, the title is Amphispaina. Yep, Amphispaina from Down Under. Is it Australian? Uh, actually, I don't know. Um, no, I think, but it is all over the world. Okay. Okay. Let me just tell you what it is. Okay. Um, it is a mythical beast. And the plural <laughs> Is Amphispainé. 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 You should be Australian. I was like singing. Daniel hated this, but I was like, watch me whip. Amphispainé. <laughs> That's amazing. Watch she was like, don't do whip. that. Amphispainé. <laughs> so good. Okay, it is it is a mythical beast mm. that I had never heard of, and I thought I knew most of the typical mythical, typical mythical beasts. Hey, that's a rap. Typical mythical hey. beast. Hey, typical. Hey, hey. <laughs> I had not I had not heard of this, so I was actually curious if you guys had, um, because it actually has a ton of pop culture references. You guys have never heard of this before. No. No. Okay, so let me just first tell you before I even tell you what it is. It shows up in The Witcher. Okay. Did not know that. Um, I think it's the books, right? Because The Witcher is based on some um, books. books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it shows up in The Witcher. Shows up in Castlevania. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but the Castlevania um, depiction of it is actually incorrect, but it's the same word. Okay. Um, Ooh, okay. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> is it one of the things that they have to battle? I think so. I'm not really up to speed on the TMNT lore, mm-hmm. but I did write down this particular sentence because I had to start and stop about three or four times because I... All right, this is the sentence. Okay. Big Mama had Michelangelo and meat sweats. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, to feed the beast, <laughs> to, to feed both of its heads. <laughs> I, let me just repeat that. Big Mama had Michelangelo and Meat Sweats compete to feed each of its heads. <laughs> oh, is it um, is it in Harry Potter? Is it the double-headed dog? No. Or snake? That's a, that's a Cerebus, or that's Cerebus. Cerberus, that's yeah. the double-headed. Cerberus. Cerberus. That Cerberus. Thank you. Cerberus is the dog that guards the gates of hell. It is, and the snake is a basilisk. I do remember the word basilisk now. Um, however, you're actually very close. So the description of an amphisbena, it's actually um, a two-headed snake, but not in the way that you think. Oh, is it each end? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like cat dog. But yes, but but two snakes. <laughs> oh my gosh! So okay, right? Okay. So okay. it's it's what's interesting is that not only is it a a two headed snake and let's say an ambidirectional snake, <laughs> um, but some depictions of it give it wings and chicken feet. Where did the chicken feet? Is it in the middle of the snake? The feet? Yes. Yeah. Why? And, who did that? Well, a lot of people, actually. Some of the other, I guess, other references of people who have mentioned or knew about Nanfisbena and worked it into their art were actually also Shelley, like Percy Bysshe Shelley, Alexander Pope, uh, Lord Tennyson. So, like, people who wow. write and are like, you know, with that whole, like, revival of, like, oh, the Greeks and the myths and it's all beautiful and, like, Amphisbena, like, that, they all did that, too. Teasing out the history, I guess, of the Amphisbena was very interesting because I'm like telling you, you know, I'm using the word mythological or mythological beast, um, but it actually shows up in the year 1200 in the Aberdeen Bestiary. And so I actually went to the Bestiary to be like, is this some kind of like weird mutant this thing? This is like, yet like I was like, you know, is the Bestiary also just like a list of like, you know, horror story kind of thing. So the beast, the Aberdeen bestiary was actually a list and description of many, many different animals that was actually, I don't know if it was commissioned by uh, like any particular king, but it, it ended up in some prestigious um, libraries. And so this bestiary is things like, this is a fox, this is a raven, this is like, you know, a duck, this is all kinds of normal animals. But then they have things like dragons and basilisks and, and amphisbenas <laughs> and, and like illustrations. <laughs> So part of my like intrigue was like, holy shit, did people think this was a real animal? Like what actually let's like look at look at it from that angle rather than being like, here's this weird, ugly dragon chicken with a snake butt. Because that's kind of also what it is. Did people think dragons were a real animal at one point in time or were they always? So I'm not an expert and I say that because some people are super into dragons. Um, and full disclosure, I was never one of those people. But I do think that kind of the, my take on this is like in the Aberdeen bestiary, these, what we call mythical beings are cast alongside very regular animals with no distinction. It's not like there's a separate wow. category that's like fucked up shit. It's like th these are things that live. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I think I've heard this as um as a conspiracy theory for why we've broken the whole idea of a multiverse, why we've broken into a different timeline because we have records of mythical animals or people believed in these mythical animals. It's like fair dinkum. 
And then all of a that's sudden a we're like, no, that's not rural. I don't believe it, but I think that is a fun <laughs> little, like, we broke away from our timeline because we don't have dragons. God, that's awesome. <laughs> or an ampaspina. 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 <laughs> Did ampaspina have a gender? Or was it... Uh... You mean ampas- ampaspina, you got to say the plural. Oh, because it was... So was it one? Oh, of them- it was not. It was a type of the way that we have dragons. Mm-hmm. Like a dragon is like a category. Oh, amphisbena like- is a category. Yeah, amphisbena. And then when you where we say dragons, we say amphisbena, like amphisbena. the a e at the end. Okay, I see. I see. Amphisbena. Okay. Yeah. So people thought amphisbena were real. I Maybe. love this. Maybe. But like, I'm glad, I'm really glad you asked that question because that was actually an angle that I was also taking and looking at all of this. So I've written down kind of proof that people thought they were real and proof that people didn't. So as far as are they real, they are recorded not just in the Aberdeen bestiary, but they were also written about in, I don't know if you guys have heard of Pliny the Elder. Sometimes he comes up also in like medical contexts yeah yeah i actually have yeah yeah so pliny the elder was um ancient rome i think uh and he wrote basically about history science like everything like he was just like an intellectual from from very old times Mm -hmm. so in a book uh titled naturalis historia so presumably natural history Mm -hmm. pliny the elder described the amphisbene and I fucking love this description because it is doused in sarcasm. <laughs> Perfect. He wrote, he wrote, this is a direct quote from Pliny the Elder. The Amphisbena has a twin head that is one at the tail end as well, as though it were not enough for poison to be poured out of one mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's so dramatic. <laughs> it's not enough that <laughs> that poison's enough. coming out of one mouth. It's got to come out the back mouth, too. <laughs> <laughs> the back mouth. So that somebody, um, I guess, also, presumably a little bit later, Claudius Aenelius wrote about Amphisbene in Characteristics of Animals. So again, like this kind of builds a little bit of evidence that these book titles to me sound like we're just describing real things in real life. Yeah. Yeah concerning i mean not really i so there are like real present day historians who try to look back and think like why did people have this impression or what could they have possibly been observing and and decided to describe this way so you know i do think that it's a classic case possibly of people just observing the natural world observing strange things and trying to make sense of it i mean my mm-hmm. own very personal headcanon is like what if somebody saw a two-headed snake went and told their friend about it and their friend just got it wrong <laughs> <laughs> yes two heads each end well yeah. totally because you see people freaking out over um like there was a pig that was born with two heads and well things get born with two heads all the time like siamese twins right so you can imagine back yep. in the day, someone sees one of them slithering around and it's like, that is mythical. Yeah. Yeah. Although, again, like, it's not like the two heads were on what we would call the front. I want to keep talking about why I think people really thought they existed for reals, because there was an entire category about folk medicine that can be um, practiced with amphisbene. Oh, 
like parts of the amphisbena or just like yeah how to use how to use an amphisbena in um your at home you know folk remedies for whatever ails you mm-hmm. of course yeah mm-hmm. so a pregnant woman is very vulnerable and a lot can go wrong when you're pregnant mm-hmm. and so the best way to assure that she has a safe pregnancy is to put a two-headed snake, a live two-headed snake around her neck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. That's rule number one. Jot that down. (laughs) A live live amphisbena around the neck of a pregnant woman ensures that she has a safe pregnancy. (laughs) Of course, to cure arthritis with a common cold, just wear its skin. You don't have to go all out. Just wear its skin. If you eat its meat, making use of the entire amphisbena, you could attract uh, lovers or lovers' favor. And if you are pure of heart and of mind and you kill an amphisbena on a full moon, you get powers. <gasps> oh, just magic powers. You've unlocked the next level. You've got powers. But I want to tell you guys my favorite use of amphisbena in medicine i'm not making this up lumberjacks (laughs) (laughs) lumberjacks suffering from the cold (laughs) can nail an amphisbena to a tree and not only will they stay warm but the tree will also fall easier (laughs) what i don't understand that makes as much sense as big mama and meat sweats (laughs) often overlooked in folk medicine so apparently there's a few different breeds of snakes that imitate having a head on each end so their tail is colored the same way as their head interesting so it's yeah so, so predators can't they don't know if they're coming or if they're going very interesting they're just not sure so I wonder if that's where it kind of come from is like humans seeing them and being like, ooh, ooh, that's a two-headed snake. That is very fascinating. I did not find And then it that. just kind of escalated. Yeah. Because you know what's funny hmm. too is that it is like a characteristic that is defined of the amphisbena that both heads are capable of independent thought. It's not like one of them leads. Ooh. So it's interesting um, the way that that kind of like starts to color itself in. Do you guys know historically who debunked the amphisbena oh don't tell me is it the same guy who debunked not, the cockling ghost not the cockling ghost guy but is it mad king george it's actually very related to the cockling ghost guy the cockling ghost guy debunked sir thomas brown mm-hmm. but sir thomas brown Debunked the amphisbena. Wow! Isn't that fucking wild? I came across his name while I was reading the wiki article and I was like, why is that name clicked on? And then I was like, fucking tell me that's the wild. No, not the wild. That was the other episode. Tell me that is the lozenge guy. It was the motherfucking lozenge (laughs) guy. guy. (laughs) So he spent his life writing a manifesto love letter to lozenges or diamonds or whatever the the shape is and debunking the amphispana what a life I do think it's very suspicious though the wiki article was like there's nothing that 
like the wiki article flagged that fact and was like there are no facts to support this so maybe somebody's watching me and was like I'm gonna fuck with her and I'm gonna put this in just half a <laughs> sentence and years from now that sentence won't even be there in Wikipedia anymore but as of today mm. that is what it said unfounded it's in there. yes wow and you know wow. what's fucked wow. is this was another one of those articles this happened to me with our very first episode when we talked about um uh, Madame Palatine. I said that I chose mm-hmm. her because of her portrait. I looked at her photo. Picture. Yeah. P- painting. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I was whatever. like, oh, that's really interesting. The etching. The terrifying etching. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. That was part of it. But it was her older photo that caught my attention. Um, that is how I landed on Amphispana, actually, was I, I ended up going through medieval cuisine and then from medieval cuisine got to something called misericords, which I had never heard of. But a uh, misericord is something that you can like basically like a ledge on a fold up chair that you can sit on. Like it's basically just like a very hmm. fancy ledge. Um, and there were it, at the bottom of the wiki article loads of pictures of really ornate misericords. And the one that I thought was beautiful and caught my attention was a depiction of an Amphisbena. And I was like, what the fuck is that? So I I swear to you, I was like nowhere near lozenges and somehow ended up like really right next to it. Everything's connected. So what I actually, I wanted to put in a little Drew section. (laughs) Yay. There is actually a group called Amphisbania. Okay. So group getting into biology. So just as a refresher, um, maybe this is like high school bio um, for some people, but you have like order group genus species, like as part of like the taxonomy. So when I say group, I mean like the taxonomy group. Oh, okay. Um, Group Amphispania. Okay. Why did I end up clicking on Amphispania? That was not the link in the wiki article I clicked on. No, no, no. I clicked on the words worm lizards. <laughs> like, a, like a flashing hyperlink neon sign was like, first I saw lumberjacks and then I saw worm, worm lizards. lizards. <laughs> Do you know what's funny? I've been through worm lizards. I forgot what topic it was for, but I've definitely been through worm lizards because I almost stopped. I don't know how you didn't stop because that's what I'm also going to talk about. Worm lizards are fucking wild. (laughs) The group is called Amphisbania. Um, And just to kind of give you like a very brief overview of their appearance, they're basically like scaly earthworms. So they don't have any legs. They're just really... um, Skate like almost something between a snake and an earthworm. They're about six inches long or less. They're pretty small. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk a little bit about their evolution, but they lost their legs independently of snakes. So you look at them and think like, oh, they're similar to snakes. Oh. No, they lost their legs no. completely independently. Wow. And kind of a bit like an earthworm. They burrow into the dirt. They live underground in an accordion motion. So kind of fucking sick. And when they're down there in the dirt, <laughs> they are motherfucking carnivores. <laughs> they are <laughs> wild. <laughs> the wiki article specifically said that they consume large chunks of their prey with powerful interlocking teeth 
and a powerful jaw. Oh, is it like the worm from Dune with the like the circular teeth? That's what I imagine, but actually in the spoilers channel, I posted a picture of their skeleton. And you can see that they have real That's what it is? Yeah. Fang like interlocking teeth. It's just every single one of their teeth looks like a fang and a very pronounced jawbone. Oh my god. I thought this was like fan art of Predator. <laughs> <laughs> I think you mean alien, but <laughs> that is absolutely a lizard worm. So Again, I, I realize that it's kind of confusing to say the words lizard worm because one has legs and one doesn't. But the Amphisbania, as I was saying, do not have legs. And I want to leave you with a stunning impression of how people think these things evolved. So I'm going to yes, talk Go about genetic diversity. <laughs> no. There it is. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm talking about evolution. I couldn't do it in maple syrup. <laughs> I'm mostly talking about evolution, but I mean, it's it's all... Drew's glowing. He's so happy. He's glowing like a big worm <laughs> lizard sign in my heart. So the thing is, the Amphispania, like I said, they're worms. Okay, they, they don't have legs. And I was, I was gushing before that they do, did this independently of worms. I'm sorry, of snakes not having legs. They live practically all over the planet like when you were saying do they live in australia no they don't live in australia but they live in north america europe africa south america the middle east and the caribbean so they live all over the planet and did they evolve differently in every place on the planet so here we fucking go this is exactly the pinnacle of why this is fascinating so people originally thought okay they ended up all over the world so they probably originated during like pangea and then when Pangea broke apart, that's how they ended up everywhere. Yeah. This is not how it happened. A hundred million years ago, the continents had shifted such that the Atlantic Ocean looks the way we know it today. It was about the size that it is today. Amphispania evolved 107 million years ago. People think they originated in North America 107 million years ago. Um, but essentially what had to have happened is that some of the Amphispania from North America crossed the Atlantic Ocean, ended up in <laughs> Europe, evolved in Europe wow. a little bit, and then went from Europe, crossed the Atlantic Ocean again to South America, and all three independent populations independently evolved to lose their legs which is not only crazy that wow. three different populations did that but also people generally think that you evolve to have legs not to lose legs so it goes against what people generally think of as like forward moving in evolution but also cross the motherfucking atlantic ocean twice and independently co-evolved three different populations to create Amphispania. This needs to be a Disney children's movie. <laughs> the Adventure of Amphispania. Scar Children. The idea is that they didn't even know that they were really crossing the Atlantic because at first I was like, does that mean they just accordion burrowed across the Atlantic Ocean twice? The reason all of these times that I was mentioning are important is because they think that they diversified in like Europe, like 40 to 50 million years ago, and then South America 40 million years ago. So this is like definitely when the Atlantic Ocean was like fully formed. 
Um, but still like a big fucking ocean. Yeah. So people think that what <laughs> happened was these guys were living their subterranean lives and something called rafting happened, oceanic rafting, which is where like really violent weather breaks off chunks of like a coast or something and that like mm. island just floats in the ocean until it eventually hits the other side. So the idea is that they were probably just underground for the whole thing. Had no idea that they were in the middle of the and ocean. had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and so my favorite, just to really seal the deal, ended on a high note, people asked the question, well, then how could they have survived in such drastically different places with no predators? You're going to have to look under the Yucatan Peninsula for the answer to that question. Ooh. <laughs> The same asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, they think killed all of their natural predators. Oh my god. That's amazing. I mean, poor dinosaurs, but good on the Ampicina. They got to survive. I think, I think that like the real group of them is so much cooler than the mythical beast. Yeah. The fact that they survived against all odds for 100 million 100 million years right yep and it evolved the ways that they had to evolved basically together um they wow i don't know they seem like the best parts of snakes and worms put together to, for me which is a real soft spot in my heart <laughs> i really like snakes and worms i really like them and i love teeth and these guys have some gorgeous specimens of teeth that's that's the amphisbena Amphisbania and Amphisbane, all told. Amphisbane. That is incredible. I have two things about this that Good. I have questions about. Good. One, Amphisbane, putting that around your neck as a pregnant woman. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're poisonous. <laughs> so one, they're, because they're, according to that one, one, or I forget who it was. Pliny? Pliny the Elder? Yep. Pliny, that's the one. Um, he said they're poisonous. Yep. So either they're poisonous or they're constrictors. <laughs> and both of those things don't work around your neck. <laughs> or they could just bite you a so, lot. Right? Like <laughs> <laughs> When I explained this to Daniel, I was so excited about this topic. I had to immediately spill the beans to somebody. And the closest person to me was Daniel. <laughs> and Daniel, Daniel. Daniel made sense of this because he would make a great old tiny doctor. He was like, no, no, no. They just clasp. They bite each other, and it's a cla- oh. it's a necklace clasp. It's like an so then they bite predators to the woman to protect her. Oh my gosh! I didn't even tell you. Oh my god! Where they come from? I skipped a whole fucking paragraph. Um, they it's the mythological origin of them is that when Perseus, after he killed the Gorgon like Medusa and was carrying her yeah. head, when he crossed the Libyan desert, the idea is that a drop of blood dripped from her head and fell into the sand. And that was the origin. So kind of like the way that Medusa's oh. head snakes protect her. I kind of do feel like it's like, I mean, this is, I still think it's a hilariously bad idea to put a double headed snake around a pregnant woman's <laughs> neck. <laughs> And I, I forgot oh. to also mention that the mythological uh, Amphisbena eats ants. That's yeah. what I'm like. Why? <laughs> it's a mythological. They could have made it eat whatever it wanted. They could have given it a good diet. No, it eats. Not. Wow. Well, okay. what's amazing it is, is like, 
it like it like grows up from Medusa's blood, and then they're like, it lived in the desert because this war came through, and it just ate all the corpses. And then they're like, oh, but it like mostly eats ants. <laughs> it's pretty tame. It's like it's okay. not not pregnant women. <laughs> like, not on that list. Uh, there you go. So, what was your second? My question? second thing. I guess it's not really a question, but I guess from our perspective, as we look at ourselves as like the highest evolution, that we having legs makes it seem like, oh, why would you lose your legs? That's like we lose all your mobility. And so that's that made me think that like having that perspective may have like tainted the 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 evolutionary idea of of these lizard snakes or lizard worms. What are they? Lizard worms? That, like, maybe yes. we had looked at them and been like, oh, they can't be evolved because they don't have legs. But we're like, they actually are evolved because they lost their legs. I don't know. It's just, They're it's in their highest cool form. Because I guess, why why do you need legs if you don't have predators? That's a lot of energy to grow a leg. To save that. Well, so, so the direct quote from the wiki article is that limblessness evolved independently three times. A finding that contrasts the morphological theory that limbed and... Amphisbanians are the most basal. Oh. So how I would interpret that is that we look at it as like, oh, why would you lose your limbs? But, you know, that's that's just evolution. Like, maybe they didn't... I mean, Sarah's point, they, they didn't need them, but, I mean, maybe their movement was more efficient without legs. Maybe, you know, worms don't need legs. You yep. know, snakes, snakes don't need legs. Snakes can run faster than I can with their little worm, worm bodies. <laughs> worm bodies. Wow, thank you for this. This is great. This is great. Ampaspina. Ampaspina. <laughs> Ampaspina. Alrighty, are you guys ready to learn about corpse medicine? Yes! Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going to specifically talk about one type of corpse medicine, which is mummia, which is the eating of mummies. But it is a wild ride. You've probably Have you heard of the myth? Or not the myth, it's you know, a lot of the time you might hear in a meme that the Victorians ate mummies. Oh, for you heard sure. about that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Cool. So I always thought that maybe that was exaggerated. I was like, oh, yeah, it's probably some rich old fox stolen eight mummies, sure. Um, did not realize that it was a thriving market for hundreds of years. Um, so I'm going to go into that adventurous history now. Fantastic. So for anyone, <laughs> for anyone who's listening who might not know, for several hundred years, many, many Europeans, including royalties, priests, scientists, uh, and other noble people, or people of education, routinely ingested the remedies containing human bones, blood, and fat as a legitimate medicine, and they thought it could cure everything from headaches to epilepsy. So, already, we're off to a great start. <laughs> wow. I'm ready for this panacea. Okay. So, you might be asking why i too was like okay yeah like how did we get to this we've got to ingest human bones to fix things how did we get to that i mean we watched Um, people do the cinnamon challenge like i'm not really mm -hmm. asking why because i know i know people will eat people do dumb shit yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah (laughs) yeah well people eat tide pods yeah (laughs) i'm like so I'm like the leap is not that great. <laughs> the forbidden fruit. Exactly. I'm like, at least this 
is maybe edible. Maybe, yeah. And so I thought maybe it was going to come from, you remember back when I talked about the anatomy of melancholy, about the four humours that we have, well, that the ancient, or the, sorry, not the ancient, the medieval and Victorian scholars thought that our body was made out of four different humours or four different biles. And, you know, if you've got an imbalance in your biles, you might be unhappy or too happy or whatever it might be. So I thought that maybe, maybe it was jumping from that. Maybe they thought if you were to ingest something from another human who had like balanced humors or biles, maybe that was to help you. That's where I was thinking. I love that theory. Thank you. I thought it was, I thought that would have been like a logical thing. It wasn't a logical leap. It actually seems that the notion of eating mummies or eating human aromanes uh, came from a bit of a dodgy translation between cultures. Originally, uh, the Arabic word mamiya, which referred to asphalt or uh, bitumen, so it referred to black tar type substance. And the reason they called it that was they used to use it on humans as kind of a cure-all. So it was this natural substance. It could either be bitumen or tar, um, bitumen, tar, or asphalt, kind of that, that realm of those, those type of rocks. Um, you know, typically soft, black, tarry material. And it was kind of, again, like a cure-all. So you've got um, a cut on your leg or maybe you've broken a bone we're going to apply, we'll apply some mamiya to you. You've got an upset tummy or, or something like that. Don't worry, we'll mix up some mamiya uh, in a drink and you'll drink it and it will make you feel better. They would eat tar? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Which I, I don't think is better than human. I don't know. I'm in mixed minds. But that that is what the, the word mamiya meant was this tarry black substance. So nothing to do with humans yet. Um, and again, so in a lot of Islamic cultures, it was used for uh, cuts and bruises, fractures, any internal problems, any problem you think of, you whack some mamiya on it or in it and you're good to go. Okay. Um, and that, that was like that for a few hundred years. And the confusion didn't happen until all of, all of a sudden we've got the crusades going on in Europe. So we've got... Um, the, the Christian Europeans trying to invade other areas. We've got cultures mixing for the first time. And they started to get confused because they had heard of this thing called Mamiya. They had seen it be used on um, injured soldiers and injured people. They just assumed that it came from the term mummies because they had heard that term before. They had heard of ancient mummies before. Oh my God. And it was a bit of a mix up because... Now, I was like, how the fuck do you mix that up? Like, okay, a mummy and a mamiya, it sounds similar, but black tar and a human corpse, <laughs> different. Yeah. Different, spot the difference. But it turns out it's actually, um, it's actually not so crazy. So um, they were running out of natural uh, areas where they could collect, where they could collect collect asphalt and, and other tar that they could use and they had discovered that in a particular um, era of Egyptian mummification they started using tars, bitumen and asphalt basically to fill in organ crevices oh, so shit. they would yeah <laughs> so they were doing the full-on autopsy so they would do the full mummification process where they would remove all the organs they would basically try and embalm using what they had their different 
their different embalming fluids and then to pack crevices they would use tar bitumen or asphalt so they would put this mummia which were known in arabic would would be put in the mummies and so when they were in desperate times they needed this cure-all they were stealing it from the crevices of mummies so it wasn't like they were eating the mummies they weren't just eating the mummies they would they were taking the tar from the mummy and this got confused because the europeans saw them doing this oh no <laughs> the europeans saw them doing this the europeans couldn't really tell the difference from what i've read they didn't understand the difference between the mummified remains and this substance that everyone was calling mummia that was coming out of them and we see here where the mix-up happened that is a real honest mistake <laughs> it's a mistake it is and it just kind of it just kept it just you know someone saw it and was like that's what we do that's what we need and it just escalated for hundreds of years <laughs> so none of the arabic speaking people were like whoa freak whoa whoa whoa, whoa. we don't do that like you know <laughs> like no one thought to correct them no there were some scholars that were recorded as saying we thought it was peculiar but each to their own <laughs> like i mean we're here taking the the mummia out of the corpses like i, I don't know like so if people were definitely sus on it and i'll, I'll get to that a little later on because some people were like ah are we sure it's like the moment that one of them calls out the other then the other one can turn around and be like okay but you're doing fucked up shit too and then like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, best if we all just that's like a war of attrition i guess we're both just like i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna say anything yeah exactly exactly uh, yeah, you're right. business they were making money people were making money from it severe amounts of money and so yeah just kind of you can totally see how the mistake happened and how it perpetuated. <laughs> and so the next thing you know, you've got these white Europeans who are munching on mummies like it's a fine jerky uh, to, to, cure, to cure everything. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and I've written here, this is, <laughs> I wrote, so really they just accidentally ate a little further than they needed to go. <laughs> a matter of like a couple inches like to the left and right. <laughs> yeah so we're finally we're getting to my favorite part of this whole story and this is so honest mistake has happened people are confused we still think it's a cure all and of course anything that's going to cure you back in the day of plague disease injury like very low life expectancy why not give it a shot and the greatest part is that the the giant leaps and bounds that educated people, mainly white men, were taking to try and explain why this human flesh is so good for you are just like chef's kiss. They are they're excellent. The like cartwheels or gymnastics of, of being like, no, 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 it's, it's right. It's we're doing it right. <laughs> exactly. So I've got a couple of great quotes that I would like to share. So one of these big leaps came from an Italian surgeon named Divago. Um, and so he tried to define, so he used this mummia, he would prescribe this mummia and use it in his practices. And he tried to dis 
define and explain it to patrons of his as, you know, it's the flesh of the dead. Um, and, it, you know, if this body has been embalmed and it's not too hot and not too dry, therefore it probably still has some virtue. So it's probably still got some health in it. Uh, and, you know, why not just transfer that into our living bodies? As long as it's not too hot, not too dry, not too crunchy. But that's kind of... She'll be right. That's kind of what you were thinking, though. Like, why it works. Yeah. I would be a really good medieval doctor at making the biggest leaps and bounds. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, Divago, I am... Obviously, I mega paraphrased any of his quotes there, but I guess he had this this idea of, well, you know, if it came from a healthy person, it probably is healthy. You know, who cares? Eat, eat your mummia. Yeah, but that person's dead. <laughs> so clearly it didn't come from a healthy person. They fucking died. Oh, no. Well, it gets so another <laughs> another polymath, a, a Swiss German polymath, so kind of like an educated man about everything, um, called Pericalus. Per- uh, so he tried to explain that it would only work, Mamiya would only work to cure you if the body of a man who did not die of a natural death, but rather died of an unnatural death. This is my was, point. Was preserved. Yes. Mm-hmm. I agree yes. with this man. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. German Because you need the healthy body. Oh, so yeah, yeah. they're, they're kind of on it. They're like, well, you know, if they're healthy, if they died healthy, you know, it's got some logic. And obviously, because otherwise, if they didn't, then it wouldn't have the healing properties. And they thoughts that they were seeing people get healed so obviously something was happening i don't know whether it was just a major placebo effect or people weren't actually that sick but they they were convinced that it actually really worked it's kind of funny to hear you be like they don't know why it worked it just did and like half an hour ago drew was like we don't know why maple syrup tastes good but it does (laughs) (laughs) it's so good but it does (laughs) we have come a long way and a short way all in one so i wanted to ask you guys what do you think of when you find like if you were going to go on an adventure to try find some ancient egyptian mummies Mm -hmm. what do you think you would find when you when you uncovered them leathery smiles that is from that's very accurate <laughs> do you have anything else to add drew do you do hmm. you both think it would be a moist environment oh no no it'd be dry as hell okay yeah yeah so um a german physician did have to clarify you are wanting for the you're wanting the dry dusty bits uh do not do not drink the liquid matter that's found at the bottom of these burial sites because people were were doing bad things and i think drew just tried drew let me just describe what drew just did and then <laughs> he, oh his word <laughs> because he just like shot back in his chair and covered his like mouth with both hands <laughs> all all of his fingertips were on his lips <laughs> i think i know why you did that drew are you thinking about a couple years ago they unearthed that giant black uh, sarcophagus oh <gasps> The, the people were like across the internet were like drink drink the liquid <laughs> like they were like, what are you talking okay i am 
Am I the only person who didn't know that there was any liquid in sarcophagi? I'm, I'm getting it for you. Uh, well, it depends where you get your sarcophagi from. Because some of them, if they've been buried, if they're a noble person who's had a, a decent burial, they're probably not under the water table or under where the sewage runs. If you were a poorer person, though, you got buried wherever, um, or, you know... Where the sewage run? Yeah, all that good stuff. So some of them you find, and they are juicy. Um, I'm putting it in the spoilers now. So this this is what I think Drew was thinking about. This giant-ass, giant sarcophagus was found, and, like, three or four (laughs) bodies were in it. And when they opened it, there was, like disgusting looking red liquid drew this looks exactly like drew's picture that he posted up above of the maple syrup, <laughs> from maple syrup. <laughs> no! that's grade a amber the bottom of that sarcophagus has grade a amber, grade a amber. <laughs> oh god so just imagine bottom of a sarcophagus we got disgusting liquid in there now only two years ago when this was found 21st century Thousands of people on the internet were petitioning the archaeologists to save the forbidden juice because they wanted to drink, drink it, it because yep. they thought it was going to be the elixir of life. It no. was sewage. It was lit- literal shit juice. They thought it was the elixir of life. This wasn't people like memeing, like people were really serious. I think it started as a meme and it just escalated. I feel like that's everything. Some people were deadly serious. Um, and so, yeah, that's what that German physician back in the day, hundreds of years ago, was trying to warn. Like, you just can't eat anything, kids. You've got to really consider what your what your mummy is. But basically, the gist was that people had, had their own, um, like, medical practice around it. Like, you should only eat this. You shouldn't drink that. They need to be like this. You know, they had their own prescriptions of what type of mummy you needed to eat. And so for a good couple hundred years... This mamiya substance was in severely hot demand because it really was this kind of like cure-all. Think of it as like Tylenol or aspirin today. Like, you know, you don't feel well, you have a Tylenol. It was, you don't feel well, eat some mamiya. <laughs> Everyone was a cannibal. Yeah, the Europeans, was, they, they were cannibals for sure. A lot of them, um, especially the upper class and wealthier ones who could actually afford this. But you know what's funny is that they were literally eating the rich because yeah. those were the only people who would have been dry coffins. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there's a gray market for for mummy. There, I'm so glad you unlocked my, <gasps> my <market laughs> level. Oh my god. So, you can probably imagine there was only so many mummies. Sure, there was there was a good few hundred maybe thousands we're not exactly sure how many mummies there would have been in ancient egypt um six seven eight hundred years ago when it started to be um like taken advantage of by the europeans basically no idea how many mummies there were but we know that there probably would have been quite a few because there was thousands of years of different dynasties and and ruling cultures and we know that from the tombs that were not disturbed, the amount of mummies and like close family that were preserved. So we think there was a lot, but not enough for the Europeans because all of a sudden gray markets and black markets were basically popping up and not just in Egypt, they were happening in France as well. So I'll, I'll get to the story a little later on, but basically people were selling 
not legitimate mummy for consumption. Uh, black market mm-hmm. mummy. Uh. <laughs> uh, I'll jump to the reason we know this was actually from some writings from Ambrose Prayer, and he worked as a barber surgeon under Henry II, which is a throwback to a couple of episodes when I talked about Henry II. Now, do you guys know what a barber surgeon is? Yeah, fuck yeah, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Surgery or haircut? (laughs) Do you want to explain for the audience? (laughs) Is is that really what it is? Legit, yes. It's literally just a a guy a guy who does a guy and or girl who does um, both surgeries and or barbershop stuff so they could be mm-hmm. both. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. quite literally it. They've got the sharp knives. They do, and sharp knives were a commodity, very expensive back in the day, and it was cheaper for you to bring your barber slash your surgeon if you were going crusading or adventuring, whatever you were doing. It was cheaper for you as a royal or a noble man to bring your barber with you as possibly we might need you as a surgeon than it was to have a trained doctor or physician. So barber surgeons were amazing. They did a lot of shit that they probably did not need to do. Um, but he actually worked straight under Henry II. So again, throwback to a couple of episodes. Henry II was a king of France. Now, uh, so Ambrose, he traveled quite extensively around Europe. And I think he even made some travels to Egypt and Uh, He's written in some of his accounts that he basically saw firsthand the manufacturing of fake mammalia. And this was called mammalia phallus because it was fake mummy. And the way that it happened, I was like, oh, okay, maybe they were using other animals or things. No, no, you needed your human. So um, in in France, what was happening was that there was... um, like some apothecaries would end up stealing the bodies of executed criminals because they used to have public executions back in the day. Um, or they would take the bodies of people who had um, completed suicide in in the city. So they would take the bodies of those that were just kind of around. They would then dry them in an oven and then sell the flesh as if it was mamiya. Oh my God. Would they embalm them or was it purely just like... They just roast them. Oh, no, I think they wanted to, like, just make them dry, basically, like, jerkify them. Make it look like they had been... I don't think they would embalm them. So that was in France. So this was kind of the, the fake mummia that was coming out of France. Um, in Egypt, there were merchants who basically admitted to collecting dead bodies um, of... of people who had passed very recently and then preparing the mummia trying to follow a more traditional Egyptian preparation method. They tried to be um, honest. Yeah, (laughs) they tried to be honest, but you know, they were making money. So they're like these idiots okay, sure, these dum-dums are going to come here, steal our bodies, we're going to sell them and make some money. Um, And one one of of the Egyptians uh, quoted Uh, is quoted as saying they're so dainty mouths they could eat the body of the dead as trying to explain what christians were you know they've got such dainty mouths they're very hoity-toity and yet here they are munching on the dead literally like that's like what i was about to say is like how how can you draw the line at modern mummies like it's like 
oh, this isn't my authentic dead body. This is a fresh dead body. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know. What, what I was thinking about, you remember how in the coffee episode, how they wouldn't drink coffee until it was proclaimed to be a Christian drink? Imagine like just like that. That is what they they like. Oh, I'm turned off by that. You know, I won't drink this. But then, fucking dead bodies, they'll eat that with no problem. Like I, I don't know. Do you the- think the Pope had to sanction Mamiya? I don't know. Oh my God. Do you think the Pope <laughs> took Mamiya? Oh, <laughs> gonna get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> So Ambrose, the the man who worked under Henry II, so after hearing these stories and seeing things firsthand, he full-on put a ban. He stopped prescribing Mamiya to any of his patients, and he was a big proponent for, ah, not not super convinced that this works. Maybe we should not. Um, So that was very good of him. There were some other people, though, who were really into it. Um, One of them was... The 17th century legend of physics, chemistry, and the scientific method. His name was Robert Boyle. Do you guys know Boyle or Boyle's Law? Uh, Boyle's Law is ringing a bell, but... Yeah. So he was basically, um, he was a physicist slash chemist, worked a lot with gases and pressure, came up with Boyle's Law. Super smart man. Um, And he's actually one of the founders of this modern day idea of having a hypothesis, testing the hypothesis, like the scientific method that we use to this day. So a scientific man, very, very smart. And he is quoted as saying that Mamiya is one of the most useful medicines and it's commended, highly commended, and given by our physicians for all sorts of causes, (laughs) from falls to bruises and in other cases too. This is happening for, yeah, hundreds of years. Um few to seven like several hundred years by this stage and so most of the mummies were being eaten up if we were starting to enter in the 19th century this like early stages of modern medicine where we started to have like some vague idea of what was happening in the human body we realized that there wasn't four humors we didn't have black bile we were starting to have like a little bit of grasp on on medicine and so the use of it actually started to die out thank fuck but it was still available for medical purchase from one of the largest pharmaceutical companies uh, in the 20th century until 1924. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, <laughs> little too modern. Little too modern for me. Way too modern. Less than 100 years ago, you could still buy prescribed mummy. I wonder if it's just one of those things that like, Everybody kind of agreed, like, we're not going to do that anymore. And then somebody finally turned around and was like, oh, we didn't, we didn't outlaw that. <laughs> we should just, we should just put a lid on that. <laughs> <laughs> Pack that down tight. Yeah, let's make sure that doesn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> so to wrap up, if you're anything like me, you probably wanted to know how much mummy did the Victorians actually eat? And it turns out it was most likely tons like literal tons. Um, So just one recorded story um, was about the import of 600 pounds of mummia by one importer to the UK from Egypt. And that was just one, one, one import. 
So my, finally, my final question that you might be waiting for is, what did it taste like? Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> Not good. So it was prescribed as like dusty powders that you would then mix in with other stuff. So it probably was not tasty at all, like not not much of anything. But yeah, you'd have to mix it in with food or drinks or, you know, you'd make a paste and slap it on your body. Um, but I thought I'd just finalise by highlighting some of the books that I've read sections of that were excellent if you want to read more about how insane the Europeans were. Um, there's one called Medicinal Cannibalism in the Early Modern English Literature and Culture, uh, and that's by Louise Noble. There's another one called Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians, and that's by <laughs> Richard Sugg. Thank you, Sarah. Those titles alone <laughs> freaking Aren't awesome. They great? Yes. I'm sold. Were you at all tempted to taste it after reading this? No. It's no. okay to say, yeah, I'll cut it out. No. <laughs> no. No. It made me feel very gross and uncomfortable, but I could not stop reading because I'm like, this is insane. This is making me feel. Yeah, it's making me feel something. Um, what about you two if you were back in the day and you had like a migraine and someone said yeah even now like aren't you a little curious no a little bit yeah i'm a little, <laughs> a little curious yeah. i wonder if people snorted it that's a great question because it used to um so we've, i think we've talked about snuff boxes a little bit yeah. before they used to have boxes very similar to a snuff box that was your mamiya box so I don't know if people snorted it because it again you could like mix it with things, make paste, ointments. I'd be willing to bet. I bet someone snorted yeah, it. Probably someone at least once. It. Yeah. I'm actually just thinking about all the little trinket boxes we think are trinket boxes and wondering if they were actually mummia boxes. Well, that was fucked. Thank you, Sarah. Yes, thank you. Glad you liked it. Man, you guys are all fucked up. <laughs> 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 Thank you, everybody, for listening, especially if you kept listening this far. Um, as always, like we love you so much. Come hang out with us anywhere that you get your social media or your social fix. Um, you are always welcome in our Discord. We would really, really love it if you would join us on our Patreon because we are spending so much fun, giggly time designing stickers and goodies and all kinds of levels and rewards for you guys. Um, you are also able at the lowest tier to opt out of any ads in your listening. We hate capitalism too, so we made it as cheap as physically possible to get rid of ads. And if Patreon's not really your thing. You can always just like and subscribe. <laughs> you can you can write us some comments. You can write us some uh, reviews. Everything helps. Truly, truly everything helps. And it really makes our day um, to see what you guys are thinking and um, how all the weird stuff we learn penetrates into your life. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All my vapors. Oh my vapors. <laughs> As always, we love Robin. We love Robin. Love Robin. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> the Germans, they make good I don't know, cut that out. <laughs> 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 <laughs>